We will pick up here at chapter 19. Let us begin with a word of prayer. The Lord be with you. Almighty God, you gave your law to your people so that they might have order and goodness in their lives. Continue to provide for us through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, as well as the law that guides us, confronts us, and lets us know part of what your will is for our lives. All this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus our Lord. Amen. <coughs> Picking up at chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you out myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So Moses came, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. The people all answered, as one, everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud, in order that the people may hear when I speak with you, and so trust you ever after. When Moses had told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and prepare for the third day, because on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Be careful not to go up the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Any who touch the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch them, but they shall be stoned or shot with arrows. Whether animal or human being, they shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they may go up on the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people. He consecrated the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Prepare for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning, as well as a thick cloud on the mountain, and a blast of the trumpet so loud that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended upon it in a fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, while the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses would speak, and God would answer him in thunder. When the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai, to the top of the mountain, the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people not to break through to the Lord to look, otherwise many of them will perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, 
the people are not permitted to come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and keep it holy. The Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let either the priests or the people break through to come up to the Lord. Otherwise, he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. A couple of um, interesting things that start to appear here. Does anything stick out um, through this chapter 19? Washing their clothes? Washing their clothes, right? A a ritual consecration that involves uh, the physical activity of cleanliness. Um, they're gonna they're gonna wash themselves. They're gonna wash their clothes. You know, we could. <laughs> they're getting ready for church in a sense, right? Um, they're putting on their Sunday best, as I think we would say uh, in, in a contemporary sense. But also this idea of physical cleanliness being a part of ritualistically tied to, to spiritual cleanliness. So for us, what is that? What's what's one part we retain in our tradition? Baptism. Baptism, right? We still we still have ritualistic washing. Um, we have other parts of that too that we still do. So we'll do we'll use the waters of baptism. We use anointing. We use um, certain physical elements to to draw us closer to God. In terms of of cleanliness of body and cleanliness of spirit, in some ways that's something that we don't retain quite as much of as in Christianity, um, but the other Abrahamic faiths still participate in that sort of um, tradition at times. So for for the Jewish people, in a sense, you know, the ways that they keep, um, keep proper order around dietary laws or around other sorts of, I think they do still have although I'm not entirely sure, some ritualistic washing. Um, certainly in, in the Gospels, right, we get to these, Jesus meets these people at these pools, um, and and that was the place of ritualistic washing before you went into the temple. For Muslims, they still have running or still water in all of their... Uh, outside the mosque. Outside the mosque or, or directly right inside, like the entry of the mosque to ritualistically wash hands and, and say prayers along with that. So this is, but I don't recall this being really, I don't remember this from Genesis that I can think of, although I might just be blanking. This seems somewhat new. Um, so there's the rule, rule we'll call it, um, about this ritualistically washing to consecrate them before God comes to the people. There's some other things that are mentioned. What else? Well, the one thing that hit me, but it, it isn't in what you're dealing with, is up here when he said uh, um, that um, he lifted up, up on eagle's wings out here. What I did to, to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you mm -hmm. uh, to myself. It was to the, we see that imagery again and again, mm -hmm. the lifting up on eagle's wings, yep. What else? Only a third day or three days in there. Three, third day, yeah. Mm -hmm. Moses is, Moses is... Well, that's interesting. I didn't even pick up on that. On the third day. So we, you know, like with Christ, right? The two days of death and then the third day of resurrection. Yeah. Two days of consecration and then and then one day of being being raised up to the Lord. And Moses. Moses is the one who's, who delivers the message and tells them that they can't do this. 
and then goes up. And yep. Aaron goes up, but the priests don't go up. So Aaron is kind of just the family, him. right? Aaron's and Aaron is Moses' second, and his brother, but he's also really his second. Um, so you have that that hierarchy that's still being established. Two more things about the about sort of the ritualistic. Um, one is anyone that touches the mountain, they won't just fall dead. They'll be shot or stoned, but no hand will touch them, right? So they will be, in a sense, um, it's an interesting prescription. You're not even going to touch them after they do it, after they defile the mountain like that. They're, they're kind of unclean now, even though it doesn't say that. You, but you're going, to, you're going to kill them from a distance, right? So they become unclean. And then the last sort of, what else, <laughs> what else along with preparing your, uh, your clothes Oh, they can't have any any sex. Don't go near a woman, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that that's exactly what that means euphemistically, um, which is interesting because spelled out yet we don't have those sort of purity laws we think of in terms of like this will come later, you know, rules about women when they're menstruating or men when they you know have discharges and all that kind of stuff and how they get put outside of camp. None of that's really in there yet, but there's something. There's something there about sexuality, men and women, that will will defile. So and we haven't really we haven't really seen that yet. Um, so that that comes into play too. And and good job picking up on the breaking through of the euphemism of don't go near the women, right? Don't do, we're not doing anything. We're just making ourselves pure. Um, so the people are getting ready. All right, let's pick up with chapter twenty. And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down or uh, serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. <laughs> you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord, to God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your maidservant or your manservant or your maidservant, or your cattle or the on the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, and your days may be long, the land in which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not kill, 
You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant or his ox or his ass or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people perceive the thunderings and lightnings and the sound of the trumpets and the mountain smoke, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will hear, but not, let not God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to prove you and that the fear of him may be before your eyes, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off, afar off, while Moses drew near to the thick cloud where God was. And the Lord said to Moses... Well, let's pause there for a second. So this is the introduction of the Ten Commandments, right? And it's a little, it's a little back and forth, the order here. Um, so the last verse of verse 19, Moses went down to the people and told them, and then it goes into, and then God spoke these words. Um, but Moses and Aaron seem to be back up on the mountain for this, um, even though it doesn't mention sort of Moses going back up. But he's, he sends word to them, don't come up um, again. And then I guess he, scurried, he goes back up. Um, so, hmm. But then it seems like, jumping to verse 18 and 20, when all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the smoke of the, the smoke, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but you do not speak to us. So it, it's tough to get a, I think a great picture of how this is working it's almost as if Moses is up on the mountain, but he can also converse with the people. Or maybe he's coming back up and down. I'm not sure that it matters, but it's just, it's, it's certainly different from the Heston scene, we'll call it, right? Um, no tablets in this one. It's the voice of the Lord speaking to Moses. The people do not want to talk directly to God because they're not holy enough to do it in their own estimation. So Moses is receiving this word and bringing it back down to the people. Um, so these are, it's, it's a little inaccurate to say that these are the first rules given because they're not. There's been rules given in Genesis by God to the people on how they're to live. Um, there's already been the Passover established and rules about that. And we just saw in chapter 19, clearly there's some, understanding of what some rules are. But these these sort of come down as these first 10 commandments of God. And we often break them up into two different sets. The first three and then the back seven. The first three we talk about, these are, are the rules about you and God. And then the back seven are you and neighbor, or you and community. Out of these rules about uh, the first three, what are the what are the biggies? What are the what are the broad strokes here? Oh, you'll have no other God. Uh, That's the first one, right? Yeah, just do not. I am the Lord your God. You, you're, 
and a reminder too, I'm the Lord your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Um, remember what I've done. Have no other gods before me. Um, Don't make any gods. Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit last week, whether that means, well, are there these other gods or not? It kind of doesn't matter. You have your God. I am your God. Um, and, and I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Um, don't, don't mess around with these other gods. Second commandment. That's three. Oh, yes. No wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. And interestingly, also prescribes you will not acquit anyone um, who misuses his name. There, there's a little bit of a tie-in here. You, you have to stretch it a little bit. When Jesus is talking, um, what does Jesus sort of say is this un, the unforgivable sin? make wrongful use of the name of the Lord. Well, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Jesus talks about that in the Gospels as being, that's kind of the one sin that is is unforgivable. Um, so they, they are tied together, and oftentimes, you know, we think about, what does it mean to make, I think we touched on this maybe last week too, or the week before, what is wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God? It's not just yelling Jesus Christ when you stub your toe, although that's not great practice, but that's not really what this commandment's touching on. It would be cursing with the word. Cursing with the name of God? Yes, that's one. So um, that, would, that would fall under that category of wrongful use of the name of the, the Lord God. The other is really... Um, ascribing something that God has God has commanded that God hasn't really commanded. So God said you need to give me your car. Right? That's 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 a funny example of but that's kind of the that, that runs along the same track there. Um, there are going to be people, prophets, leaders, teachers, who are going to speak with the authority of God. If they misuse that authority that's a big problem for a number of reasons. What's what's the biggest sort of pragmatic problem of it, though? They're setting themselves up as God. They're setting themselves up as God. They can abuse people with it. Um, they can use it for ill-gotten gain. I mean, we see this again and again and again, right? This is what people do. God's name still has power in that sense, and people misuse it. They can start wars over it. I mean, if you talk, think about the big scale of it, you can start a war with the name of God. You can you can do all kinds of things, proclaiming you have the power of God. And when Jesus talks about um, blaspheming the the work of the Holy Spirit, what he's talking about is sort of the the opposite end of that, which is Jesus is doing the work of God, and people are saying that he doesn't have the power or authority to do it, and that's the caution he gives to them. So either way, whether someone is falsely operating under the sort of the, the largesse and power of God, or someone's denying the work of God that someone else is doing. Both of those would be um, blaspheming or, or misusing the name of God. Is Jesus then, from what you said, 
uh, are we to imply that Jesus is God, that it's the Holy Spirit working through him? Now we're getting into Trinity questions. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever God is at work, all persons of God are present as well. Trinity's always an example. So, yes, I am the Father, and the Father is in me, and the Spirit works through Jesus, and Jesus is, they're all tied together. So, um, but they are, they are questioning the, the very, this is also before Jesus makes a, in that gospel too, that's before Jesus in any way is publicly known as the Son of God or, or a person of God. So maybe relying more on what they would have understood as the Spirit too. But either way, both of those sort of touch upon that commandment. Um, and then finally we get to the third, which is remember the, remember the Sabbath day. And what? who gets off on the Sabbath? Nobody. Not even the animals. Or, yeah, but I mean, they're all off, right? Everyone's supposed to be off. So, and I think that, now think about this. This is commandment number three that Moses comes down or shouts down the mountain, whatever we want to think his position is, right? When we hear in the Gospels all this discussion of Sabbath, 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 and we who don't keep Sabbath, really, um, as Christians, because it was determined we're not under that portion of, of the covenant, um, sometimes we have a, a tough time realizing what a big deal that is. That's, that's commandment number three. I mean, that's when God describes his relationship, have no other gods, don't misuse my name, take the Sabbath off. You're all resting, right? And so Jesus is healing on the Sabbath and his disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath. And you can, it seems obvious that's like, well, yeah, of course you should let them do it. If this is the third thing to come down from the mountain, you know, you can see why people would say, no, no, we really need to keep that really firm as much as anything else. Um, so it's a big, it's a big deal. Sabbath law, Sabbath rule. All right. And then these back seven, I think it's almost funny that the, uh, most of them get no explanation. Um, the, the God ones get explanation. These ones just kind of are laid out there. Honor your mother and father. Interestingly enough, why? That one gets an explanation. So that your days as a people, you could read, will be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. So something about honoring your mother and father is sort of directly tied to um, keeping the land, which is... Um, has been promised to you. Which has been promised, but remember, so now there's two portions, right? It's, it's promise plus what? We talked about last week. It's two things for the people to find favor in the sight of the Lord. It's the promise and covenant, and then it's what? Their obedience. Their following of the of the yeah, their obedience, their following of the law. So it's going to be both of them in order for the the covenant to be fully lived out. You shall not murder. Sometimes you could. The word is actually kill, although usually it's been understood to be a type of killing as in we understand murder, um, because certainly there will be, there will be killing, right? I mean, there has been too. 
anyone that touches the mountain is going to get shot with arrows, right? So there's a, there's, but, so murder is probably a better translation just in context. Um, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That can be taken narrowly or broadly too. Um, whether or not that is broadly as in you don't lie or whether it's really more about bearing false witness, which if you think about it was the basis of um, really law until, gosh, not that long ago, right? I saw Mary do this. That's bad. I, that could turn out very bad for Mary. So don't lie about, don't bear false witness and testimony against others. Um, you know, obviously, I think as, as people of faith, it's better to take it more broadly as just don't lie generally. But I think there's a little bit more gravitas here about don't accuse others falsely. And then coveting. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, male or female slave, or ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Um, don't do it. All right, so those are the those are the big ten. No no tablets just yet. All right, let's pick up at, at verse twenty two and then uh, verse twenty two through twenty one eleven. The Lord said to Moses, "Thus you shall say to the Israelites: You have seen for yourself that I spoke to you with I spoke with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver alongside me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold." You need to make for me only an altar of earth and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your offerings of well-being, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. But if you make for me an altar of stone, do not build a bit hewn stones, for if you use a chisel upon it, you profane it. You shall not go up by step to my altar so that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. These are the ordinances that you shall set before them. When you buy a male Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, but in the seventh year he shall go out as a free person without debt. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go as a free person, then his master shall bring him before God. He shall be brought to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him for life. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall go not out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign person since he has dealt unfairly with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish the food, clothing, or marital rights of the first wife. And if he does not do these three things with her, she shall go without debt, without payment of money. All right. So, um, concerning, concerning the altar first, how, what should the, uh, what should the altar be? 
pot and a pile of uh, dirt and small stones. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's an interesting um, bit of imagery there. I think that um, God is not at least yet fancy, <laughs> right? Um, and I, I do love that imagery because it almost you think of the garden and sort of the this is a creator God, and the idea that you don't have to you don't have to ornately create. Um, so those building gods of gold and silver beside me are, you could take that both as the idea of the false idol gods, but also you don't have to make a, a graven image of your god out of gold or silver to worship your god. Um, in fact, you don't even, you shouldn't even be chiseling the rock for the altar. Everything can just be sort of gathered and put together, um, which is kind of, kind of neat. Um, I, I like that. How about um, how about these laws concerning uh, slaves and family affairs? What do we what do we make of that? That if you take them into your family, then um, they should become the children of the recognized children of. God, because just like your, just like your two uh, sons. It's interesting, though, that if she bears him sons or daughters, and the wife and her children shall be her masters, and the, the slave shall go out alone, why would that? Why would that be? Well, because presumably, I guess, the slave that is, um, but what's interesting is it leaves the option with the, it's, with not, the it's not a great option, but it leaves it with the male slave, right? Uh -huh. um, he, he is brought in, so when the, the, there's a difference too, first of all. So what's the term for the men's slaves? They're not. They're not lifelong. Yeah, six years. They're six. They're six years. And then they have the seventh year option to, to leave. Um, it doesn't seem like it's that way for the female slaves because the female slaves are brought into the family. There's, you could read that multiple ways. Um, the one way would, I think, be the generous way, and I tend to read a lot of these more generously, and I know that they can sound odd to us because obviously the rules about slavery and that doesn't comport with what we, what we think of. But if you think about rules being established, right, why is a rule established? It's to keep order. To keep order and because something is probably already happening that is unpleasing. It's the same reason we still kind of make rules now, right? There's a problem, you make a rule because you want to change and fix what's going on. So in that sense, if you look generously at, at these laws, they're meant to, they're meant to actually provide some form of protection. 
um, the male the male slave he you can't keep him for life six years and then he gets the option to be set free if you married him which it doesn't sound like he has a choice in but if you married him and he has this wife who is now your female slave and they have kids together um, for better or worse he gets the option at the end of those six years to what? Stay slave um, with them. Or, or, or take them. Mm -hmm. He can't take them. But he goes free. He can he go free. Right. So those are his options. He can leave or he can stay with with this family that, that he's had. It's not, a, it's not necessarily the best choice. The more generous choice would be to let him take his family. Um, but that said, he also has an option then to stay. But ultimately what's interesting is who, who has charge of the, the female slave and her children ultimately? The master. The master, right? So he's responsible for them, which could be good or bad. And if the, if the male slave wants to leave, this marriage was constructed by the, the master, he gets to go and start his own, his own family somewhere else. The master remains, if he wanted to marry them, them and have these kids, he remains with them, unless the male slave wants to stay. And then they're both his slaves for life then, but he's also expanded his family to a point where he can't just, the master can't just kick them all out either. Right, so there's a, again, this is the generous reading, but there's a there's a duality where there where the, the master also has a certain amount of responsibility, and he can sell them presumably, then as a family, um, but and we we kind of get contact from this down below with the selling of the female slaves, what's the limitation of their of their sale? They can sell her, but if she doesn't meet the requirements or whatever, they can't sell her again. Well, they can't sell her to foreign. They can't sell her outside of the of the community, right? So she's she's staying in the community. Um, cannot be sold to foreigners, and the female slaves, in in a sense, get um, again. This is generous, but protections, right? So. You're, you're buying this slave presumably as a, as a wife or a, or a concubine or something in that sort of an extra wife or whatever it is. Could be even be the first wife as it says. Um, so if you take her in and she doesn't please you, um, who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. Um, she can get out of it. And he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt unfairly with her. So the, the master brings in this female slave. He doesn't like her. He can't just do whatever he wants then. Um, he has to allow for her to be made sort of back to neutral. So again, that's, that's kind of a protection. Um, if he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. Um, so again, it's, it's both... It's not chosen, it's slavery, but it's um, setting certain rules and boundaries. And if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish the food, clothing, or marital rights 
of the first wife. Um, so then it also protects the earlier spouses, so to speak, from a guy that doesn't like his wife anymore. He brings it, he essentially buys a new wife. He can't just say, well, nuts to you. No, she still gets her cut. Yeah. So these rules they are... Have to, they have to treat them all alike. Yeah, and so these rules don't just... Again, it's a system that we obviously don't use and for good reason anymore, but at the same time, I think it's it's better when we read these rules sometimes to think about what is, what's the purpose of them. Um, it's not just to strengthen a, an unjust institution, it's also to actually provide some protections for the people that are a part of that system. I just finished reading a book about fundamentalist Mormons mm -hmm. and the polygamy. Yeah. And they say, you know, that this was instituted, accepted by God. Mm -hmm. And they continue today in Canada and Montana and all these places yeah. to have many wives. And they quote this kind of thing that God, you know, didn't see that this was wrong. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> This is, this, is, this is one of these challenging things. For Abrahamic religions, um, as a group, polygamy in the sense of a man taking multiple wives, it's never been polyandry within the Abrahamics, which would be women taking multiple husbands. That's just ne never been allowed. But men taking multiple wives is never truly forbidden. Um, and so you wind up with instances of um, it, it becomes unfashionable at some point throughout Judaism's history. And I don't know if they exactly know when or why, but it just kind of falls out of, even by, even by the time of Jesus, um, there was probably very little, if any, polygamy left among the Jewish people. Um, but it was never forbidden. And one of the really interesting, this is, it was regrettable, in Luther's own mind, but um, in the life of Martin Luther, so then we're talking about the 1500s, he winds up with this situation. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Philip, Philip of Hesse, or one of these sort of princely land baron types who is Lutheran, and Luther's relationship to the, the upper class was interesting because he had to keep a good relationship with them because it was that princely class that kind of determined what religion could be practiced and all this. Um, so one of these, one of these princely types had a wife and he also had a mistress whom he really, really loved. And he was, um, adamant that he was going to divorce his wife and remarry his mistress. And in Luther's own mind, again, back in the 1500s before divorce, and this is also, remember, divorce in Christianity really wasn't allowed till like the early 20th century um, by any church. Luther is just appalled because it's clear in the Gospels in some sense divorce isn't allowed. So Luther actually arranges for him to take a second wife in the form of his mistress because he goes through the scriptures and he says, well, it's never forbidden and it's always sort of been allowed. So it's just... Yeah, there, there are still parts of Christianity even 
in in parts of Africa, and I'm not sure, maybe the Middle East too, where polygamy is still more practiced, that there are Christians that still engage in polygamy. But the, how do you do do not commit adultery and taking second <laughs> or third or fourth wife? <laughs> well, it's not adultery then, is it? You're married. That's the. That's you get, for the you get the blessing. You get yeah. You're you're married. The Right, and that's that's how adultery is the prescription against um, sneaking around. Yeah, having having sexual relations with someone that isn't your spouse. Uh, more specifically, even um, having people having relate sexual relations who are already married with someone else. Right, that's that's adult at its at its truest form. That's adultery. So. If you're married to one person and you're married to a second or a third and a fourth, as long as you're all married, you're not committing adultery. It's interesting in this book about the fundamentalist Mormons, though, the amount of um, abuse of females. Yeah. And that's, that's often what part of the reason, I mean, there's a number of reasons not to like polygamy. One, one of the reasons that we really kind of don't like it today that we think about is it often sets up these situations where a females are are often traded at a young age and aligned to these sort of prescribed marriages mm -hmm. but b even when they're in a marriage as it alludes to here of it already being a problem well i'm i'm me i have three wives i can do two things i can favor one and disregard the others I can make them compete against each other. I can play two against one, right? Because there's only one of me and there's there's three of them. So it creates this really, you would think, you could almost think like, oh, well, wouldn't having more wives almost put the guy at the disadvantage? It doesn't. It it, it puts the, the man at the disadvantage, or man in the position of advantage in that he can sort of dictate and wield power because instead of, two more co-equal partners, you have one full partner and then you have the other partnership kind of divided against the rest. So it creates a lot of systems for, for abuse and especially with the way that they trade the daughters off and trade them off at a young age and they run the young men out of town because everyone wants their seven wives or however many. So it's a numbers, just about as many babies are born male and female. So you wind up with a with a particular numbers problem right there. Um, yeah. It doesn't seem to fit with God's thing, though. I don't think. For creation? Well, it created men and women in the beginning, and we say don't commit adultery, but we allow multiple wives. Yeah. I... I agree. I, I don't think it fits. I wouldn't marry anyone to a second wife or a third wife. Um, but for whatever reason, it was just seen as normal. Um, I don't exactly know why. Uh, one of my doctoral students and his wife, they didn't have any children. And uh, he was getting pressure from his family, whose father had three wives, mm. um, 
that he should marry someone else because uh, Jamila didn't have any children. Right. And so, well, they ended up, but they went to medical and, and this sort of thing, and they only had one child. It turned out for their luck to be a boy. Uh, on it. And that took the pressure off of him. But um, I don't know how they got along in their family because when he was in, in school, you know, kind of junior high or high school, uh, they were talking about, and his, he had, his father had three wives. Hmm. And uh, the one that literally was younger than he was. And um, someone of his classmates told him, no, you can only have one mother, but they call them all mother. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, so he went home from school and asked which one of them was his mother because he didn't know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I, I and, and that's what, that's what most of the the people that have, and, and again, we've not practiced polygamy at large, on a large scale in Christianity. It was never really practiced in Christianity. It was, it was never sort of a major thing of, of the Christian church. And that partly had as much to do as when, when Jesus comes along, like I said, most, most of the Jewish people were not in polygamous relationships by then. And it was really uh, taboo within Greco-Roman culture. They just didn't, they didn't do plural marriages. They did a whole bunch of other things that seemed strange to us, but they just, one, one husband, one wife, that was kind of that. Um, so it was gonna have no foothold there. Um, but regardless of that, it was always kind of that leaning back on two things. There's the, there's the image both, um, you know, within the Adam and Eve story of, of those words about, you know, and man shall leave his father and mother and take his wife and they will become one flesh. And also Jesus quotes that again in the gospels. Um, and nothing revolving polygamy comes up in the gospels. So, but there, there had been people that leaned back on, um, on the, uh, instances in the old Testament and said, well, it was there. And a lot of the most prominent figures in the Old Testament wind up having multiple wives. Um, David has, I can't remember the exact number, quite a few. His son Solomon has, you know, some like 900. So it's a... And it's political arrangements. It was political arrangements and it was family arrangements of it. Um, you also get the you also have that age thing where you start to, the reason it, it almost kind of works is the, the young men, especially those that aren't the wealthy ones, you know, they wind up taking a wife when they're, you know, maybe 19, 20-ish age range, but they start marrying off the girls at 13 and up. So you kind of have this bubble built in where you have these extra females that can go marry men die and then they have widows and then some of them become second and third wives to someone else. So the, the other argument, and I think this is one of the ones that the Mormons made originally, whether it's, it's true or not, was that polygamy kind of came into fashion for them once they started um, losing men, either to, to the Mormon wars and battles or um, you know just these cross-country expeditions. And they wound up with these extra women and as, instead of having them be widows or single, 
um, and not having a male to support them, they would just come on as second and third wives. And that's kind of what got the ball rolling because you oftentimes, and here's another thing with, with polygamy that, that is absolutely true. Um, you know, in a lot of instances you had cultures really since the beginning of time where the men go off and fight and you have a whole bunch of your male population die in war, or you just have more men die because men are more violent anyway. So you would often wind up with an overabundance of females from time to time throughout generations. And there's no, there's no male to match them with. So that, that's, that's another reason that they say that polygamy sort of developed was that you just have this disproportionate number of females due to war and violence. If you aren't careful, the women will take over. <laughs> if you get a large number of women, if, take if over. you're not careful, they'll take over, or just the way the societies were set up, they just won't be. They'll just be destitute. Um, it, it would be inconceivable that they could, you know, do things on their own, support themselves on their own in those eras. So it was like, well, you need to, you need to find them a, a family unit to attach to, or just the you whole system. Never tell who might poison you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And, Are, and that's the reason why the African chiefs, they have male cooks. They don't have female cooks. They have, oh, the females might poison them. <laughs> that's why I do the cooking at home. All right, we'll finish chapter 21 here. Um, we pick up at verse 12. Whoever strikes a person mortally shall be put to death. If it was not premeditated, but came about by an act of God, then I will appoint for you a place to which the killer may flee. But if someone willfully attacks and kills another by treachery, you shall take the killer from my altar for execution. I, I do love that though, that like, so if I'm, if I'm building my house and I accidentally throw my hammer and it hits someone, I can't stay because there's going to be too much bad blood. But basically a portion of the group is going to take me to somewhere where I can run away is the answer. But I'm not going to be put to death. It was an honest to God accident but I can't stay. Whoever strikes father or mother shall be put to death. Whoever kidnaps a person, whether that person has been sold or is still held in possession, shall be put to death. Whoever curses father or mother shall be put to death. When individuals quarrel and one strikes the other with stone or fist, so that the injured party, though not dead, is confined to a bed, but recovers and walks around outside with the help of a staff, then the assailant shall be free of liability except to pay for the loss of time and to arrange for full recovery. When a slave owner strikes a male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies immediately, the owner shall be punished. But if a slave survives a day or two, there is no punishment, for the slave is the owner's property. When people who are fighting injure a pregnant woman so that there is a miscarriage and yet no further harm follows, the one responsible shall be fined what the woman's husband demands, paying as much as the judges determine. If any harm follows, then you shall give life for an eye, life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for a burn, wound for a wound, stripe for a stripe. When a slave owner strikes the eye of a male or female slave destroying it, the owner shall let the slave go, a free person, to compensate for the eye. If the owner knocks out a tooth for a male or female slave, the slave shall be let go, a free person, to compensate for the tooth. When an ox goes, gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. 
but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. If an ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned, but has not restrained it and it kills a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on the owner, then the owner shall pay whatever is imposed for the redemption of the victim's life. If it gores a boy or a girl, the owner shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall pay to the slave owner 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. If someone leaves a pit open or digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution, giving money to its owner, but keeping the dead animal. If someone's ox hurts the ox of another, so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the price of it, and the dead animal shall also they divide. But if it is known that the ox was accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner had not restrained it, the owner shall restore ox for ox, but keep the dead animal. All right, a lot of different things there. Um, Axes are really dangerous. You don't, you don't think of it. <laughs> well, of course, they got these horns, and they wouldn't be noted for doing this with their heads. But, um, you know, they, they uh, are kept with beasts of burden and, and work. Yeah. That sort of thing. And you keep them in those work things, it would be real difficult for them to do something. So why have all these laws and rules? Again, it's control or it's keeping order. Yeah, keeps it, it, it prescribes it. People know what to expect. Um, it it limits vengeance, or it's supposed to. I mean, that's part of our reason that we have law now. You know, we don't have the the prerogative for an injured party to just seek vengeance on our own. There's a system for it. These systems have long been in place, even in the time of, of Moses here, right? Um, and it's called justice. Yeah. I mean, that's how it's... And it's, and it's justice not always because it feels fair, but because it's the rules of the, of the community. Um, and that they can change, and they certainly do. Um, again, sort of going back to that being generous to the law. So there's this rule here about striking your slave. So the slaves are not, they're not worth as much in the system. Their lives, I mean, just to be frank, their lives are not worth as much. If you strike a slave so hard that they're bedridden for, for a day and a half, what is the outcome? Nothing. Nothing. That's, that's, that's okay. That's what it is, right? You've lost a day and a half or two days of productivity to think about it really sort of as a as a matter of you know justice or punishment for the for the slave owner. But other than that, that's that's yours to do in a sense. What if they're bedridden for longer than that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If they die, if they die, they'll be punished. Um, but not put to death. Not necessarily put to death. Just as it is an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth with them when it comes to... Uh, when, when, when one of the slaves died, their owner is compensated. 30, 30 
I believe it was 30 pieces of silver, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there are other rules. So again, th there's at least you would be putting in the in the mind of the of the master. You can't just kill your slaves, even though they're your, they're your property, right? So it sets them up as property, but you can't just kill them, or the community punishes you in some way, shape, or form. So that's that's prohibitive. The only reason I say we can read this generously, okay, well, what's the what's the guiding principle before? What should happen to me if I kill my slave? You should be killed. No, nothing should happen to me. Slave's my property. Oh, okay. Huh? This restricts it. No, you can't just willing. You can't just go about willy nilly killing your slaves. We're going to punish you for that. It again. It's a protection for the slaves. In the in the absence of all rules, I know that I own a slave. My assumption is I can do whatever I want. This this constricts, this adds protection. Um, again, that's being generous. If I knock out one of my slaves' teeth or eyes, I go free. I just lost my slave. Right? So this would this would pull back the, the reins on entirely abusive um, and really kind of sociopathic slaveholders. It would make, it would give you pause. It's a, it's a labor protection in a sense. Even though these, these people when they're held in slavery are not seen, um, are not accorded the same level of protection or benefit of the law, it at least imposes some.